the 19th century American poet John Godfrey Sachs wrote a poem entitled The Blind Man and the Elephant based on a famous Indian legend. It's a humorous poem so let me read it to you. It was six men of Hindustan to learning much inclined who went to see the elephant though all of them were blind that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp. To me it is mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up he spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and fell about the knees. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most Deny the fact you can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope, than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. And now for those who haven't grasped it, here is the moral. So oft in theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other means and pray about an elephant not one of them has seen. Now such a view is a very popular one. Even more so in the 21st century than the 19th when this poem was written, let alone two or three millennia ago when the fable was first created. Each of the insights and teachings of the world's religions and religious leaders are at best but a part of the truth for all of us are blind. No one has seen an elephant. No one has seen God. To claim otherwise seems the height of arrogance and such a person is likely to be shot down in flames or worse. 2,000 years ago, a man did claim otherwise. Not just to have seen God, but to be God with the result that he was not just shot down in flames, but nailed to a cross. His name was Jesus. Today many, if, most, if not most people, claim to respect Jesus as a great religious teacher. But few of them, I discover, have actually read most of what he said. And even fewer have taken seriously 
what he said. Or thought through the implications if what he said were actually true. And that's what we've been trying to do in these third Sunday guest services in the evenings here in Charlotte Chapel. By asking the question, if everything Jesus said were true, would it make any difference? And today we focus on one of the most controversial claims of Jesus. It's found in the fourth of the four written Gospels of his life, written by a man named John. And you'll find it if you want to look it up in the Bible. We tend to, uh, in this church, read the Bible together. If you can see one, it's page 1082. 1082. We're going to be looking at this together. And this is a particular saying of Jesus I want to focus on this evening for a brief while. It's John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If what Jesus says here is true, then we cannot overstate the difference it must make to each one of us. So can I invite you to invest few minutes of your time and attention to consider what Jesus said here and you will see in this verse, in this statement, there are three related claims that Jesus makes. And I want you to look at the important implications that follow if what Jesus said is true. Here is the first one. They're all pretty obvious. You can work them out for yourself really. Number one, if Jesus is the way, then we need to follow him. If Jesus is the way, as he claims, then we need to follow him. Many years ago, there was a famous religious prince that used to hang in many a church hall. Winding across the canvas from left to right was a road, and it meandered its way across the canvas, a tortuous way through quicksands, dark forests, lion-infested jungles, and forbidding mountains, until its final destination portrayed on the right a beautiful city bathed in sunlight with gleaming spires. And on the left of the picture, at the beginning of the road, was a man in a white robe with his hand on the shoulder of a small boy pointing off down the road. You didn't need a degree in art to work out what he was about. The man is Jesus, pointing out the long and difficult route which must be followed by the small boy or by each one of us if we are to get to heaven. You can almost hear him saying, you go that away." And that is what many people, even churchgoers, some churchgoers, think Christianity is all about. Jesus came to point out the way to blaze a trail which we must follow if we are to get to heaven to the celestial city. Jesus came to show us the way. But, if that is all we understand, then we are mistaken. 
Jesus didn't say he had come to show the way. He said, I am the way. However, if we are mistaken, we are in good company. For the disciples of Jesus to whom he spoke these words in this chapter in John's Gospel didn't understand this either. When Jesus spoke these words, it was near the end of his earthly life. And he was preparing them for the fact that he was going to leave them. Naturally enough, they agreed at the prospect of losing someone they'd grown so much to love and trust. But Jesus tells them not to worry or be upset for he's leaving them for a purpose. He's going on a journey. Now, if you look at the Bible and the verses that precede verse 6 at the beginning of chapter 14, read with me what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Jesus describes this journey. He says he's on a journey to his Father's house. That's shorthand for what we call heaven, the place where God dwells. He's going to his father's house for a purpose. He says, I'm leaving you to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And when he arrives at this destination in heaven, he will not, as it were, stand on the golden ramparts and invite people to come and join him to follow the trail he's blazed and marked out. <clears throat> no, he says, I'm going on this journey and I'm going to come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. He is returning from his father's house to take his followers to be with him. And then he adds, if you look at verse 4, he says, you know the way to the place where I am going. But they didn't know. And one of their number, Thomas, by name, who was famous for his doubt is blunt enough to express his confusion on behalf of the rest. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus responds with his bold claim. He says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says that access to his Father's house and to his Father who resides there, is through him and through him alone. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to the Father and to the Father's house. Not one of us can get to the Father on the basis of our own merits. Not one of us can get to heaven by our own efforts or qualify for heaven by our own goodness. No, all of us fall short, way short. But Jesus, as it were, paid the entrance fee that we could never afford or earn in order to get us into heaven. He could at any time while he was on earth have simply returned to heaven, resumed the relationship with his Father, which he said he'd enjoyed way back in since eternity began. That's not a contradiction. But instead... He chose to travel back home by a very painful and difficult
back to the Father's house via a cross. And on that cross, he died in our place so that through him, we might get back to God. If you grew up in a school like mine, we used to sing hymns, and there was a famous hymn we used to sing. We don't sing it very often nowadays. It's a good hymn. There is a green hill far away without a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. One of us says, He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good that we might go at last to heaven safe by His precious blood. And the next verse says, There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. He only. Jesus, the way to heaven, the way to God. This is what he claims. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this is at the heart of the Christian faith. It may seem arrogant, but our arrogance is not based on what we think. It is based on a conviction that what Jesus said is true. And when you're convinced about that, it makes an enormous difference. The followers of Jesus, after his death and resurrection, were so convinced about it, that the threat of punishment and even death would not deter them from saying that Jesus is the only way to God. One of their number, Peter, said on one occasion, when threatened with jail and worse, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Shortly afterwards, the first of their many of them was martyred, stoned to death by a religious mob. He would be the first of thousands. Many of them would go to the Roman arena and be presented with a choice. Throw a pinch of incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord and you can go free. But they would not do it because they said there is only one Lord. Jesus is Lord. And they would sooner die than say otherwise because they were convinced that Jesus was the way to God and also the way to heaven who would take them there. So, if what Jesus says is true, if he is the way, then we need to follow him. But Jesus not only says he is the way, he also says he is the truth. And if Jesus is the truth, then we need to believe him. The issue of the way to God naturally leads in the conversation recorded in John 14 to a second issue about the truth of God. So look what Jesus goes on to say. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. But once again, the disciples don't understand. One of them, Philip said, verse 8, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Philip wants God to appear visibly. That will be proof enough for the disciples. He says, that will settle the matter for us. But they've completely missed the point, even after being in an intimate relationship with Jesus for three years. The truth Jesus reveals is about who God is. Look what Jesus says in verse 9. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say show us the Father. Now again, these are stupendous claims. Jesus is saying, he's not just a religious teacher who reveals some of the truth. 
about God. A blind man who has some insight into what an elephant is like. Nor is he even someone who sees perfectly what God is like and explains it. Describes it accurately to the rest of the blind population. No, he is far more than that. He reveals who God is because he is God. He doesn't reveal the truth about God. He says he is the truth of God. And if the disciples and we want to know what God is like, then Jesus, as we've done, is the accurate picture, the perfect portrait of the invisible God seen in human flesh. To see Jesus is to see the Father. Notice, however, the term that Jesus uses for God. He refers to him, to him as the Father. So, drawing a distinction between himself, the Son, and the Father. There is no contradiction between them. They act in complete harmony. One reveals the other. So Jesus asked Philip again, verse 10, Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? And Jesus reveals the truth about who God is in two ways. First of all, he reveals who God is by his words, what he says. Read on. He says his teaching is not self-inspired. It comes directly from the Father, who speaks to him and through him. Look at verse 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you are not my own. Rather it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. One of the most remarkable things about Jesus. Can I simply say, if you're not a Christian, you just doubt all this and you're sitting there saying, I wish you'd get on with it and I'd go home. I understand. But all I'd simply say to you is, you can take one with you. I'll still tell the elders later, if you've not got a Bible, take one and just read one of the Gospels with an open mind and read what Jesus actually says. His words are astounding. The people who heard him said, we've never heard anything like this. They were astounded. The word used in, in, in the, the Greek word used to describe their astounding is literally, they were hit in the mouth. If you want a crude word, they were gobsmacked when they heard Jesus speaking. Because they said, we've never heard anything like this. This is amazing. He speaks with originality and authority. Even his religious opponents couldn't work out how an uneducated carpenter from Nazareth with no theological training could speak like this. John 7 verse 15 The Jews were amazed and asked how did this man get so much learning without having studied? And Jesus left them in no doubt. This is what he said. My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will he will find out but I was saying to you now if you sincerely want to know God's will and to follow him if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. That's John 7, 16 to 17. And the words of Jesus now and then are self-authenticating to those who hear and obey them, who hear and obey him. Because they're not the words of a man, these are the words of God himself. Can I simply say, that's why I'm a preacher of the gospel. If it depended on my words, if you will, and gathered at my eloquence, I'd be, I'd be in deep trouble. But however feebly you try to present it, there is a power in this word, in this gospel. I've studied the Bible for many years now. University, college, the Bible translator, and I'm totally convinced that these are the words, this is the word of God which has power and impact and authority to speak to you, whoever you are. But Jesus goes on to say, if his words, what he says, 
are not convincing enough proof, then his works, his miracles, what he does, should surely be enough to convince anyone that he is the truth of God. Verse 11, he says, Believe me, when I say that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or at least, believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Now, the second remarkable thing about Jesus was not just his amazing teaching, but his powerful miracles, culminating in the greatest of all, the raising of a man who has been dead for four days. And the ample proof of who he claims to be. These are eyewitness accounts, written. They've stood the test of time, of scrutiny, down through the centuries. And at the end of this Gospel, when you get almost to the end, there's a kind of postscript in chapter 21. But at the end of chapter 20, the writer John summarizes why he's written this account of the life of Jesus. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, eyewitnesses, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John 20. 30 to 31. Now that last bit reminds us of a third claim that Jesus made about himself. Not only is he the way and the truth, he is also the life. If Jesus is the way, we need to follow him. If he's the truth, we need to believe him. And finally, if Jesus is the life, then we need to know him. John begins this gospel, and if you want to start with a gospel that really will, will stretch you and challenge you, read John's gospel. He begins by describing Jesus as the eternal Word. The one who was with God in the beginning, instrumental in the creation of the world. The life giver in creation. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that had been made. In Him was life, and that life was the life of men. John 1, 1-4. In Him was life. It was he who breathed into man the breath of life so that he became a living being. And that life meant eternal life. Life in here is not just physical life. It is living in a relationship with the living God. And it's called eternal life because of its quality and its duration. An unbroken relationship with the living God that lasts forever. Sadly, our first parents, the first man and woman, rebelled against God with the result that instead of life, death entered the world. Not just physical death, but separation from God, from that relationship for which we were made. And for all their descendants, not just Adam and Eve, but all of us. And it was in order to reverse this disastrous state of affairs that God the Father sent His Son into the world on a rescue mission to bring life to a dying people the most famous verse in the Bible and in this gospel sums up the fact that Jesus is the life giver he brings salvation, rescue John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life and those who believe that Jesus is the truth on the basis of his words and his words discover as they put their trust in him and commit themselves to him that not only is he the way to God but also the life of God through him we receive a new relationship with God which the Bible calls life it happens in experience it's not an outward observance 
Jesus tried to explain this to a very religious man. Again, it's recorded in this Gospel, in chapter 3. And, and, and the term he used, it's a much abused term today, sadly. But he said it's so radical, it's like being born again. It's a new start, a completely new life. Jesus answered to this man, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. You must be born again. And when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, when you turn from your own way of life, of your rebellion against God, when you admit your need, and you turn to Jesus Christ, who died in your place and rose again to restore you to a relationship with God, then you receive new life. You enter into a relationship with God. Now, you can't explain it unless it actually happens to you, because it happens in experience. But it happens now. Jesus said, again, John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that they may have life, and have it to the full. Now here's the amazing thing. This life doesn't end with physical death. Jesus tells his sister, grieving the death of her brother, that death is not the end of this life, but death is but the entrance, the continuation of this life, to eternal life forever. I'll be reading these words on Tuesday at Morton Hall, at the Pentland Chapel, at the Thanksgiving service, for one of our members who died last week. And I read them with confidence that you knew Jesus Christ. I shall say, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now those are incredible claims. No wonder that Jesus prayed again in John at the end of his life, John 17, 3. He said to his Father, Now this is eternal life real life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. If Jesus is the life, then we need to know him, to enter into that living relationship with him, which is life indeed. Well, I've almost finished. Know. began with a story from India, of the blind men and the elephant. I lived in India for quite a few years. So let me conclude with a similar illustration which you may have heard, which also originates from the subcontinent. The picture of an ox cart wheel. It says that all religions are like the spokes that lead to the hub of the centre that is God. And I find some people say, that's what I believe. So, if you believe that all religions lead to God, can I ask you two questions? First of all, if you believe all religions lead to God, which one are you following? And secondly, has it brought you to your destination? Have you arrived? Do you know God? In most instances, I find that people who say that all religions lead to God are in fact following none of them. Because such a viewpoint implicitly infers that it doesn't seriously matter anyway. In contrast, the exclusive claim of Jesus forces us to make a choice. Either he is the way, or he's not. Either he is the truth, or he's a liar. Either he is the life, or he's just death. He doesn't leave us with the option that he is simply a way, a truth. A life. The exclusive claims of Jesus are, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. They face us with a choice with only two options. Are they true? Or false? And the only way you'll prove one way or the other is by experience, by putting them to the test, by putting him to the test. That is turning from other ways. Putting your faith in the one who is the way and the truth and the life. Thomas Akempis, the German devotional writer from the 14th century, wrote a famous meditation on the verse that we've been studying, John 14, verse 6. Kind of old language, but it's lovely. He says, reflecting on what Jesus is saying, Follow thou me. I am the way and the truth and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. If everything Jesus said were true, would it make any difference in this respect, in this particular statement at least? An enormous difference if it's true. But only if you put his words and put him to the test. Can I encourage you to explore further? Maybe you've heard it all before and you need to take that step of putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you want to know more. As well as the book on baptism, there's a little book appropriately called Journey into Life. And again, it's free. Just take a copy. At the end, there's a prayer. You can pray if you want to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to speak to one of us, we'd be delighted to tell you more about what it means to follow Jesus, whom we have come to know as the way and the truth and the life and to trust in him. Let's just bow in the final prayer.